Good morning, church. My name is Ray Brandon, the pastor for preaching uh, here in Northbridge. What's going to happen in two weeks? I'm pretty excited about Thanksgiving. Are you? Oh, yes. It is holiday season, um, and so Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, I love this time of year, minus the snow. Um, it, it is wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I always, always love um, that uh, Thanksgiving morning where um, you wake up, right? This is, this is you wake up, and, um, and what do you smell? Oh, yeah. I'm hungry already. Just thinking about it. Yeah, you smell that turkey, right? Because uh, somebody got up early, early in the morning, right? And they put that turkey in. And, um, and, and the holidays are just a, they're just a wonderful time, right? We think of family, we think of church family, we think of friends, all of those kinds of things around the holidays. There's a, um, there is a statistic, and um, I, I looked and I tried to verify it. I, I read this statistic. Um, that had to do with, um, with holiday meals, and I, I couldn't verify it. I couldn't find the, the source, um, but it said that 80% of people will eat a holiday meal with someone they absolutely can't stand. I, I've asked a few people, is that true? Like, I've, I've just tried to do my own kind of research. Is, is, that, is that true? Most people wouldn't immediately say yes. <laughs> You know, because you're like, which, which, at least if they were in a group too, that made it even more awkward. You know, like, I can't say yes because somebody might think it's them. Um, but so I haven't scientifically independently verified this statistic. But I think that whether it's 80% or 50% or 40%, we would all say that there's something about the holiday meal, right? You think about. Um, not just your immediate family, but gathering around that large table, right, with uncles and brothers and grandparents and, you know, people who married into your family and girlfriends and boyfriends and all of that around that table. What a wonderful place for contention and conflict. You know, friends, we are, are living in a time in which perhaps that Thanksgiving table is even more volatile than it has been in the recent past. I have asked people about that the last couple of weeks, and nearly 100% of the individuals that I've asked have said, yes, that is true. We are living in an age of deep division. That's what I want to talk about the next two weeks. So a little bit unusual series um, the next two weeks talking about table manners. I want us to think about this idea of um, what is dividing us. Um, so I want to look at that this week and then what is the cause. Both weeks we'll get at solutions um, to that. We're going to point towards, okay, what do we do with this? But today I want to look at what is dividing us. Uh, my, my hope in this is that um, it equips you for that um, dinner table around Thanksgiving or Christmas in a narrow sense. Um, and in a broader sense, just simply as Christians, how do we deal with living in a very divisive age? Now, I will tell you this, um, it will probably be easy to um, criticize in some ways um, this message in particular because I, it, it, there's just so much to say in looking at the Bible um, that I am just not going to be able to cover all of it. Um, so if you leave here saying, well, he didn't comment on this passage or this, you will be absolutely 100% right. Um, when you start to look at what is it that divides us, there is so much in the Bible. And so I've had to use discretion and say, okay, what do I see in the Bible? What does God's word say? And what am I seeing around? What are the kinds of things that we're seeing in particular um, that are, are, are some of the main causes or at least appear quite often? Um, I'm not sure really how to rank or categorize these things, but they do come from God's word. 
And that's my intention, is to show you the what of, of division, and then to get at the root, the, the why, in a, in a message next week. Why do we divide? So, I, so when, we, when you think about this, we, we say, well, what is dividing us? We could answer it, answer it this way, sin, right? That would be the very simple answer. We could pray. We could go home. That would be correct, maybe not real helpful, right? Just to simply give that answer. But that is true. It is sin that divides. We live in this world that's affected by sin. It's broken by sin. But sin and sinfulness in the world, there's, there's also an agent, a catalyst in the world. Sin isn't just something that's, that's latent. We are living human beings. And we know that the Bible says that we have an adversary. Um, we have an accuser. Um, we have Satan in the world and the forces of evil. So yes, we deal with our own sin, but there's also this pressure, this system. There are The, the battle is not, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, uh, simply against flesh and blood. But we have to recognize that there is a spiritual battle that is taking place every single day. Right? We don't live in a place of neutral. Um, we live in a world in which evil and evil exists, and the forces of evil believe that they will win, and they're seeking to defeat you every single day. So I want to look at, so we can press back against um, these, these things that divide us. Uh, so I want to look at, I just want to look at five things, and we're going to turn in our Bibles um, to a number of different places. So if you would grab your Bibles and first turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So I want to look at these, um, we could call them strategies, five strategies for division. Um, the first is this. The first is this. The first strategy is, is that in order to divide us, we are categorized into groups that create division. We're categorized, we're placed into groups that create division. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. It says, but I, brothers, would, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. When you read that verse, you know, okay, something's coming. <laughs> I can't address you as spiritual, you're, you're acting fleshly, you're acting carnally. He goes on, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Right? So Paul is using that question and talking about a human way as not in are you behaving as fully human, but rather fleshly, broken, natural, going along with the flow of carnality, carnal wisdom? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely, or are you not being merely human? What is then Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. What was happening there in, in the church of Corinth? Um, they were beginning to divide based on categories. People were saying, well, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. Um, they were putting these kinds of labels. And Paul here is saying, is, is it really bad to be of a Paul and of Apollos? He's actually saying, no, that's, that's not bad. Like These were men who taught God's word. But these categories, they were being using the following of these individuals to do what in the church? To actually divide. I'm this. I'm that. And we see that this is, this is a strategy um, to continue to, to divide. Take, take your Bibles and go over to Genesis chapter 5. 
Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5 in verses 1 and 2 in, in Genesis 5. They say this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. Okay, so God created what? He created humanity. And how did God create humanity? He created humanity as what? Men and women. Is there not still a struggle between man and woman? Don't we see that? All the time and nearly every day? Well, I'm one or I'm the other. One is better. There's this constant friction. How, when we look at how God created man and woman, were they not created for what? For unity in God's glory. But what happens in a fallen world? The categories that God has created now clash rather than complement for God's glory. Go over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23. Galatians 3, in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir to promise. Paul is not saying here that men and women lose their distinction. But rather, what Jesus does is he restores, he redeems what God created and moves it towards that purpose for which he created it. And so the, these distinctions, these categories that are oftentimes used they're very superficial, but we, we see that, and you can imagine that around the table. Be careful of that. Right? Remain curious, but be careful of categories that create divisions. We see that throughout Scripture. Those categories are not meant to create divisions. Be careful of that particular strategy. Allowing yourself to simply say, well, if there's this category and there's this category, then we are opposed. Now, the discussion actually has to go deeper. But we'll see that all the time around the table. And that might be a simple one, a simplistic one, but how many discussions automatically get off track because you are this. Dare I say it? Political. And this other person is this, put that political category, right? Now, all of a sudden, there is no discussion, right? I'm not that, therefore, divide. There might be a genuine divide. But be careful. Be careful of those categories. We see in 1 Corinthians, what Paul's saying is, there actually isn't a divide. Why are you dividing over simple categories? Second strategy. Second strategy assumes sinful motive based on fill in the blank. It assumes, second strategy is assume sinful motive based on fill in the blank. Um, James chapter 3 verses 17 and 18, I'll read it for you. It says, the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, right? So um, the only God can see into a person's heart. And so the, this strategy assumes sinful motive based on certain things. Well, I 
saw that you did this. Therefore, I assumed you were motivated in this particular way. James says, wait a minute, that's not wisdom that comes from above because wisdom that comes from above is what? Peaceable, gentle, full of mercy, impartial, sincere. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says this, Do not pronounce judgment before the time. For the Lord who comes will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. Who sees our hearts, church? God sees our hearts. Be careful, you you can't see the heart of, of another person. So be careful. Now go take your Bibles and go to Acts. Acts chapter 17. I want you to see this particular passage. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We, we can't see the hearts of people. What, what do we see? Oftentimes we see the outward, we see the outward action, right? We see the outward action. Um, so this gets a little bit complicated because you, you can't know the motive that's on someone's heart. Um, you can't see what, what, is, what is in their heart. Look at what Acts chapter 17 and verse 26 says. Verse 26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, look at that verse, verse 26. He made what? He made from what? What's the next two words? One man. He made from one man. What did he make from one man? The next two words. He made from one man every nation. Right? This is the word of God. Right? There's implications of those four words, an assuming motive. Right? He made from one man every nation, which means that everybody has their origin in who? Adam. Right? Now, we could go to Romans and say, well, there's some implications of sin. That would be a good theological direction, but that's not why we're here in this passage. What this means is we cannot assume because someone is of a different culture, ethnicity, skin color, language group, that they must be this. That they must have a particular motive. That those, this, is, this is a strategy that, that divides us. That we are all, we all, there is, there aren't human races. Right? There is only one race, one Adam. We are all in Adam. There aren't multiple origins to the human race. And so there are those that will assume sinful motives simply based on on someone's tribe, color, or culture. The Bible says, no, that's, that's wrong. That actually, that's, that in and of itself is, is sinful. We go back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Some of you know this because it was read at your wedding. And we oftentimes need a reminder especially of verse 7 that says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endure all things. Verse 8, love never ends. 
We need this, this reminder, and perhaps we're even getting towards a solution when we think about this. Love bears all things. That means it never gives up. It never grows weary of being with another person in their best and worst deeds. Right? Love bears all things. It says love believes all things. It's choosing to believe the best about other people rather than the worst. And it puts aside sinful cynicism to assume that others are operating out of good motives instead of poor ones. Love hopes all things. It hopes all things by looking toward others with the sincere desire that they are operating out of the best intentions. It hopes that they will accomplish the thing that they are moving towards and love endures all things by not giving up quickly. It perseveres through sin or the appearance of sin. It's quick to forgive, quick even to cover an offense and slow to cast doubt. Now this does not mean, word of caution, this does not mean that love is overlooking sin when it appears. Assuming that someone's rightly motived. It doesn't mean that when sin is there, that we just say, ah, no, we we address sin as the word of God instructs us to address sin. But what it means is that we cannot know someone's heart. So we know how we have been loved and we are called to love as a reflection of that love. That's the second strategy um, that we see. Maybe that will help you at your dinner table to assume, right? To, to assume in your own heart love rather than assuming motives based on fill in the blank. Because right? the Bible instructs us that that only divides. Third, A third strategy is to transfer guilt from one person to another. Um, This is guilt by association. Guilt by association. Um, When you think about this, you think about the Hatfields and McCoys, right? They lived on opposite sides of the river, West Virginia and Kentucky. And when when you say Hatfields and McCoys, most of you know that that was a, a feud that lasted how long? Multiple generations, you know, where did that start? Where did, where did that, that start? Well, it's, there were two issues in, in that family. Um, one was um, the, over the Civil War, there was only one family. The majority of the Hatfields and McCoys fought on one side of the efforts of the Civil War. There was one individual who fought on the other. And what happened is when he came home, one of the relatives murdered him. The rel- one, one of the other relatives accused a person who was actually homesick in bed of the murder. Well, what happened was, if you read the story of the Hatfields and McCoys, this just fueled anger in their hearts. And the real division came over a pig. And a dispute about a pig. And from that dispute... You could say, and it would be appropriate, that all hell broke loose for multiple generations. It was more than a river that divided them. It was saying, well, you're a Hatfield or you're a McCoy, therefore you're guilty by association. It's the kind of thinking that goes like this. Krista is thinking about becoming a vegetarian. Then she learns that many mass murderers were also vegetarians. So she keeps eating meat. Hey, put that way, it's rather funny. If you don't want to be a mass murderer, barbecue, amen. <laughs> but it's rather silly thinking. Guilt by association. It's sin by proxy. And the Bible says that that is absolutely wrong, but we see this happening in multiple different ways in our culture. And sometimes it pops up around our dinner table and we don't even realize it. 
Sometimes we realize it in other places and we're like, look at that. But we also have to, when we say, look at that, we also have to look here. We have to say, it, we, we cannot associate someone being morally bad or wrong or simply because of the family they're in or the company they keep. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 18 through 20 said this, As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. Right? Do you see what's happening? Wait, the, the father behaved unjustly. And so they're wanting to they, they punish the father in Ezekiel's day. They also want to punish what? The son. Ezekiel. Uh, the priest turned prophet, um, an unusual man. I spent a lot of time in Ezekiel this past week preparing for Bible conference. Was assigned Ezekiel 23. Read it some other time. You will have pity on me. Ezekiel, the priest turned prophet, says this. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now, this is a principle taught in Scripture over and over and over again. The soul that sins shall die. Right? All of us are responsible for what? Our own sin. You're responsible for your own sin. You are not responsible for the sin of the person next to you. Tell them that. Go ahead. I'm not responsible for you. Good. Did that feel good? No, but it, it, it did feel good. But yet what we realize in Scripture is the Bible says what? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are in desperate need of a Savior, and there's only one, and that's Jesus. And we cannot assign the sin of one person by proxy to another. But yet we do that, don't we, in many ways? It's wrong. It's a strategy of Satan to divide us. And we ought to give no place in any way to that kind of sin. Right? There, there, the Bible says um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful thing to know that there is forgiveness and there's forgiveness of sins. And each one to his own is responsible before God for their own sins. The fourth strategy um, is impartial judgment. Impartial judgment. Many of these are very much related. They weave together, but yet the scriptures call them out in certain ways um, and in ways very, very different um, from one another. Look at Mark chapter 7. Look at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Uh, I'm like, what in the world? That is not the passage. Well, it helps when you're in Mark and not Luke. That's not what I intended to say. Mark chapter 7, verse 9. It says, And you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. What was happening? God said this in his word. And they said, oh, well, let me tell you what God really means. We're going to do it this way. Look up on the page um, in, in verse 6. And he said to them, what did... What did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? Now, these, this is Jesus speaking. That's a pretty rough way to speak to people. You hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching doctrines and commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. 
Judging impartially means that you have a particular standard for justice, and it is not God's. You have your own standard for justice, but it is not God's. What, what happens? He said, verse 9, and you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whatever and whoever reviles your father and mother must surely die. But if you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. What were they doing? They were establishing their own tradition so they didn't have to take care of their aging parents. That's what they were doing. That, that's what the, and he's saying, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're creating something, you're creating a standard, you're circumventing what God has said. In other words, you're saying, I don't care what God has said, I'm, I'm going to have this creative end run that I feel justified by so that I can keep what God's word says. And Jesus says to them, you're a hypocrite. A hypocrite because they're trying to justify themselves. They're trying to justify themselves. Oftentimes, the rationale um, in argumentation is we're simply trying to justify ourselves. Um, Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 and 2 said, it says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to, do ma to, to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many to do evil. You shall not bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. You shall... Um, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. There, there is, there, there, you have to, to be, you have to have particular evidence in a, in, a, in a lawsuit that has to be presented. But here there is partiality in, in judgment. And the Bible says, no, there should be no partiality in judgment. Let me give you an example. Kevin DeYoung um, who pastored here in Michigan, has moved to North Carolina. Um, he is a prolific writer. I have a, a deep respect for um, his, his writing, his, his theology, and his preaching. Um, he wrote a book review, a critique of a book review, um, written by Athea Butler. Um, the book that Athea Butler wrote was White evangelical racism. Butler, throughout the book, makes particular claims. In this particular book that, that is written, there isn't substantiation. Uh, Butler writes that the underlying message of groups such as the American Family Association, Focus on the Family, and the Family Research Council was morally and essentially to preserve the nation and that the sexual immorality of America, including race mixing, would be its downfall. Now, that's the claim. That's the allegation. It's a fairly well-known allegation regarding race mixing as a form of sexual immorality. It's serious. When you make a serious allegation in a book that you publish, there's something that is required. It's evidence. Evidence is required. Athea Butler gives no evidence. No evidence. Gregory Thompson and in, in Duke Kwan um, published... Uh, a similar book called Reparations. DeYoung wrote this review of their book. In reply, um, the authors wrote this. While Reverend DeYoung while Reverend Young's review subtitle indicates that he believes his review to be an expression of a theological project, 
we believe his review actually to be expressive of a culture, a cultural project that seeks perennially to justify itself on theological grounds. And the cult, that cultural project is in one inelegant and highly disturbing phrase, white supremacy. The problem with the charge of his review is when you make an assertion of that, that weight, you have to have what? Evidence. In their rebuttal, they, they write this of Kevin DeYoung's review. White people are inherently superior. They go on to make these statements about white people being inherently superior. Like King's opponents in 1963, DeYoung consistently pri privileges white theological voices, minimizes white supremacy's tragic impact on the lives of non-white persons, and prioritizes the comfort of white people and in this respect, while he does not argue for white supremacy, he nevertheless performs its most basic impulses. And then later, the pursuit of white comfort is, in other words, um, the, the reason given for white supremacy. They say it was more than disappointing to see the prominence of this instinct in Reverend DeYoung's review, in truth, it was distressing. Uh, could go on. We see this, and I look at an audience that's majority white. We say, well, yes, this is, this is wrong, and we can rail against that and say, well, this is unbiblical. And um, it is true, in fact, commenting on this same um, on the same particular article, Carl Truman says um, that if this is the nature of our discussion, we can have no discussion, but rather only read a liturgy. What he's saying is what the authors want to hear is what the authors want to hear. There's no discussion. Now, I point that out, and we say, okay, well, that, that's, that's, that's wrong. We, that, that shouldn't be. You need to give, if you're going to say that this, this man is, is promoting white supremacy, what do you have to give? You have to give evidence. But yet, if you work back from that in our society, um, the literature that we consume, the things that we read, the allegations that are often tossed about in media, in our own speech, do we hold ourselves to the same biblical standard? Do you hold your neighbor to the same biblical standard when they speak ill of another person, when they make accusations or allegations? We have to be careful that even in our judging and saying, well, that's wrong, that we don't do the same things around our dinner table in our casual speech. Bless you. <clears throat> Finally, I know that that's heavy. I know that that opens up a whole bunch of things, hence my pausing. But I want us to, I really want us to see that you know, we can't have our pet issues over here and use the Bible and say, look, that's wrong. And then understand that you know, that standard that we use to judge over here, if, if, if that's biblical, right? The biblical standard goes across the board and we got to be careful that we don't do an end run and simply have something over here and we don't allow the word of God to judge us by that same standard. Does that make sense? Because right, you think about that. When we judge by a biblical standard, 
which we are called to judge. We are called to judge by a biblical standard. What will that make us? Humble, merciful, because we know we are condemned by that very same standard. And we know that we need Jesus. It leads to humility, not arrogance. The Pharisees were arrogant, and that's why Jesus was so hard on them. Be careful around your dinner table. You don't step into the same kind of sin and feel justified. That's why I bring something like that up. It causes us to open our eyes. Finally, um, in, in related, um, the, another strategy, a final strategy, is what I'm calling the fairness standard. It's related to this last strategy, but it's a fairness standard that simply promotes envy. It simply promotes envy. Now, I'm going to ask you a trick question. Okay, so it's a trick question. The things that you have belong to who? You or the state? It's a trick question. I gave you a heads up. Neither, okay. Such a smart church. Neither. You're right. Neither. Our, our things are really not our own. That's what the Bible says. They're definitely not the state's, right? There's, there's certain things that the state has a right to that the Bible describes. We won't get into all of that. But what the things that we own, who do they belong to? They belong to God. They belong to God. And what are we to do with those things? We are to steward those things. The Bible talks about equality and talks about equity. Um, equality in the Bible is that people are created equal. So equality in the Bible means that every person before God has equal value. We're created in the image and likeness of God. We have equal value. When, when using the, the term equity in the Bible, it means the same standard. So we have a modern use of this word equity. But in the Bible, it means same, the same standard, God, that God judges with justice. Psalm 67, 4 says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Psalm 99, 4 says, The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. In fact, in, in 2 Samuel 8, 15, it says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And so equity in the Bible is God's standard to judge. He judges with equity. In our society... Equity means equity of outcome, that everyone has the same, that everyone deserves the same. Um, it is this idea of a fairness standard. The fairness standard in the Bible is something that's different. We get into these conversations around our table. We think we're talking about the same thing because we're using some of the similar terms are the same terms, and all of a sudden we're missing each other, and what happens? There's conflict. The Bible says that we are all created in the image of God, therefore every person is equal. We owe respect to every person regardless of who they are because what? They're an image bearer of God, that God will judge with equity, that he will bring justice. It will be The outcome will be completely fair. Our world says that, no, we are responsible for equity. We're responsible to make sure that everyone has equal outcome. That is not a biblical concept. It's not a biblical concept at, at all. Justice, in a biblical sense, is aligned with redemption. Justice is not that everyone gets an equal share. Listen to Isaiah the prophet. 
He says this, Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. See, our, our redemption by justice is located in the coming Messiah. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit in him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Who is responsible to judge rightly? Who is responsible to judge and who's responsible for the outcome? It's Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. Now, this does not mean that we do not love justice or, or we do not have responsibility for those who are oppressed. Psalm 41 says, Blessed is the one who gives active consideration to the weak and poor. In fact, we could look at the scriptures that call primarily, it's primarily the family. The family is called to be in scripture three things. The ministry of health, the ministry of education, and the ministry of welfare. Right, that's a whole other series and a whole other topic and a whole other discussion. But primarily through the families, as the families are part of the church, we are called to advocate. We can do this in several ways, by direct relief, um, by empowerment. We, we are certainly need to look out for those who are oppressed around us. The gospel isn't only a message of forgiveness but it's also a message of restoration to righteousness. God forgives injustice in the world in order to restore in Jesus justice. He saves us not only because he loves us, but because he truly hates sin and injustice and will not allow his beautiful world, all that is in it, to remain under the influence of evil. This is our hope. Our seeking after justice as Christ followers cannot mimic the ways of the secular world. It cannot. We can use channels that are available to us, and I encourage you, advocacy, the state, policies, and redemptive ways to further God's reconciling mission. But we do not, as Christians, rely solely on these human advocates avenues for justice as christians we have a higher hope and that hope for justice is not in government or in human solidarity but it is in the lord jesus christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection we need to rely on god's ways of love truth prayer forgiveness repentance and justice without the gospel Justice is hollow, but justice without the gospel will always be deficient, and it will always lead to division. Because you see, here's, the, here's, here's how it goes. Without Jesus, right, without Jesus in the world, there is injustice. And so with in, injustice, what has to happen? Somebody has to pay. Someone has to pay. That's how, that, that's how justice works. Someone has to pay. With Jesus, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Which also means you don't have to win every discussion around the dinner table. You can smile, nod your head, and wisdom, keep your mouth shut. But it also means that in humility, you can give an answer for the hope that is within you. You can say, no, this is the way the world works and explain that world through a, through a biblical lens, through a lens that contains love, because that really is the answer. 
That's the answer to the conflict around the dinner table, is love. Read that chapter again. It's not just good for weddings. It's good for all gatherings because it points to Jesus who endured my injustice, your injustice, to make you righteous. That's how we can say you're forgiven. And in Christ, there is no condemnation. That you do not need to fear. That you have no shame. Because you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And that redemption he offers to the world. We're going to look at, here, these were the strategies. Now I could mention more. You've probably thought of several others. You probably thought about a lot of things the Bible says that I didn't cover. That's the nature of a message like this. Next week, I want to look at why. Where does this come from? Where does this come from? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, a message like this is necessary, but yet it feels as if we didn't do enough to put the pieces of your precious word together in a way that reflect what you are doing from the very beginning of creation to the very end. Lord, we have a, a privilege to gather with family and friends in a few weeks. And so we pray that we would use this time throughout these holidays uh, to speak of how you love humanity, how you hate sin and injustice, and how you have placed all things on Christ and you were satisfied for he paid the price. For the greatest sins in humanity, if we were to rank them to the less serious sins in humanity, all were placed on Christ. All were a corruption of the good that you have given to us. All deserve eternal punishment. Lord, as Christians, we confess that we often are not as humble as we ought to be. That we speak sometimes too soon or too loudly. And also we confess that sometimes we just want to avoid an argument, so we say nothing. Lord, we don't want to be right. Forgive us of that. What we want is we want to point to you. That's the goal. So help us to do that in a way that people can see the beauty of your justice and the beauty of the table that we are about to partake that our bond as brothers and sisters is in Christ before all and above all other things. Everything else makes sense in Jesus. Unite us as your church. Unite us as families. Unite us under the rule and reign of our Savior Jesus Christ as a nation in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.